Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. And I'm Franz Borsha. And today we're joined by John Jerram, Professor of Education and Social Statistics at the Institute of Education, University College London. John's research focuses on the economics of education, particularly access to higher education, educational inequalities, cross-national comparisons and intergenerational mobility. Listeners to the show will already recognise several topics close to our hearts in that list, so you can see why we've asked you onto the programme. Welcome, John. So, in episodes of Policy Matters, we've traditionally talked to economists with the occasional academic from other disciplines thrown in for good measure. Your title, John, is Professor of Education and Social Statistics, but can you um, unpack that a little for our listeners? I mean, I've known you for a number of years and always think of you as kind of a quantitative uh, researcher, close to economics but not exactly in economics um, and you publish in education journals and psychology sociology as well as economics how would you describe yourself kind of discipline wise yeah that's a good question so i see myself very much as someone who applies quantitative methods to social science problems a lot of it within education uh, but also broadly kind of to other kind of uh, disciplines as well sociology economics psychology so very much a kind of uh, a mixed bag the, the funny thing about my title it's got professor of education in there and i haven't set in a foot in a school for about 20 years i feel uh, slightly a little bit of a fraud when i talk about uh, being a professor of education much more on the kind of statistics quantitative methods applied mainly in education and so social statistics that's as a kind of is that would you consider that a discipline in itself or just a it is a discipline within itself, though quite a niche discipline. And although that's what my PhD was in, and that's uh, kind of in my title, I very much see it's just applying quantitative methods to kind of real-world social science problems to kind of solve pro- policy problems, which you know isn't very far away from kind of very much applied uh, economists like yourself. So, yeah, that's it. It's kind of you're you're kind of fitting very well with the areas that we're interested in. Um, and as I mentioned, you've got quite a lot of interests that span kind of economics of education, intergenerational mobility. How do you kind of do you have a kind of overall kind of research agenda that you can sum it up or do you just have lots of different pots that you're interested in? <laughs> lots of different pots that I'm interested in. I, th- I think the first advice I got kind of when I was doing my PhD was to have, you need to focus on one discipline and be yes. concentrated in that. Ignored it, <laughs> just completely, <laughs> completely ignored it and kind of very much gone uh all over the place discipline wise i guess on substantive topic though i kind of started work using the pisa data set which we'll talk about doing kind of international comparisons and that's i kind of more focused around that rather than necessarily kind of an academic discipline i think it's important to take you where your curiosity takes you and not just be stuck in the same old thing uh you mentioned the pisa and the cross-national comparison before we go on to that I would really like to talk about your most recent papers. And I should warn any listeners, I think we might be swearing a little bit here for a moment, but it is in the name of science. So <laughs> do remember advisory. that. Yes, yeah, parental advisory. Explicit <laughs> lyric. So your most recent paper is titled Bullshitters, Who Are They? And What Do We Know About Their Lives? Great title. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that research is about? You guys inspired it, of course, of course, the title. (laughs) No, no, no. So what I was doing uh, in that paper was um, I was using this kind of PISA data set, which I kind of specialise in, which is a kind of an international data set across several countries. And I noticed that in the 2012 wave of um, this study they asked uh, 15 year old children how well they knew these kind of 15 different mathematical uh, constructs so things like fractions or whatever uh, but three of the 15 were fake 
and they were asked to rate them on a scale of one to five how well they understood or knew about the construct from I've never heard of it too. I am the world expert in this thing that does not exist. <laughs> so we ended up um, using that information to kind of um, try to tease out. Is that unique? Because that sounds really... I've never really come across a survey where they put in kind of fake questions. That, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, I mean, there, there are some surveys. So uh, within the UK context, the British Crime Survey actually uh, do it, but they don't have three fake things. They only have one and they do it in... Uh, terms of uh, drug names so they get people to say have you taken this drug this drug this drug but one of the drugs they list is kind of it, it is, yeah. isn't isn't real um, cool. and I guess the motivation for doing that paper was there's a lot of talk within um, economics and has freshly been in psychology about non-cognitive socio-emotional skills and stuff like that well what's one of these kind of non-cognitive skills that we all know about within the real kind of worlds and you talk to your friends about but has been really understudied it's bullshitting so i mean it's interesting that you say that i have read very little about this but in our day-to-day -day lives i mean perhaps i wouldn't quite call it bullshitting maybe overconfidence or something else but certainly there's a lot of engagement at with people my age in my professional work where I just think mm, <laughs> are we <laughs> are we are we kind of inventing some stuff here this seems a bit a bit random so so what do you find uh, so we uh, find uh, a lot of the stereotypes you might hold about uh, overclaimers <laughs> uh, really do hold. So this was an international survey. We found the uh, North Americans are the most likely to uh, overclaim or to bullshit. And then the uh, English, were, uh, along with the kind of uh, Kiwis and the Australians, were in the middle. And then it was the Scottish and uh, the Northern Irish that were the least likely to Okay. say they knew about the fake items. That's really interesting that there is that kind of three divisions with the kind of clearly almost a geographic of of the US and Canada top of the of the bullshit league if we can call it that and then we can England that. kind of mid table and then and then Scotland Ireland Northern Ireland at the bottom. And other dimensions so gender or SES yeah, so we we saw gender differences so male were more likely to bullshit than females we saw high socioeconomic status kids more likely to bullshit than low socioeconomic status children uh, and then what we also did in the paper was to look at how it correlates with other um kind of psychological traits of uh, individuals so we found that people who scored higher on the bullshit scale were more likely to say you know what well, I persevere and I try my hardest until things are perfect and you know I'm popular at school and various things like that so kind of all those stereotypes um, kind of seem to hold. I mean I think what I found interesting is that you know children from more advantaged backgrounds score higher on that scale. Um, is there some sort of I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about the science behind this, you know, is there an advantage to exhibiting this kind of behaviour? Yeah, and that's kind of how we conclude the paper, because this is cross-sectional data and we can't look at kind of future outcomes, but it's certainly kind of um, how we kind of uh, tease the audience in some respects for kind of more research in this area where we say we don't know the implications of this. And although it's got a very negative connotation when we talk about it, actually it can have very real world positive impacts of so certain jobs you know require bullshitting even in academia <laughs> well the funny thing is in pisa every other cycle they ask kids about their job aspirations but they didn't ask it in 2012 and i had estate agents well up yeah. there politicians as well i guess yeah but, yeah and I mean, academics of course and, well some academics not you know present company accepted of course, of course. um but interestingly though thinking about these things you pick out like men more likely 
and high SES more likely. I know like in other work we've talked about and uh, perhaps other work of yours that we might go on to talk about, we find those earnings outcomes and some other labor market outcomes these differences we you know a lot of research and a lot of public interest in the gender pay gap these days um men earning more than women and also you know we find that people with the same qualifications who go into graduate jobs often the kids from the higher socioeconomic backgrounds end up earning more uh, and getting into more elite jobs than the ones from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and that does obviously this is just a kind of a single correlation here but you know, do you think there's some explanatory power there in the fact that, you know, men more likely to bullshit, higher SES more likely to? Yeah, and this is pure speculation. I don't have data or hard evidence on it, but it's certainly what we might think. So you just say even going to uh, Oxbridge University, right, you end up having a uh, interview. Well, actually, I'm pretty sure that if you can bullshit well, that's probably going to be to your favour in one of those interviews. If you can get through and kind of make out that you know stuff that you don't in that very small period of time, you would think if it's ever going to come out and do you an advantage, it would be within an interview setting. So Yeah, and you think as well, this is something we talked to um, Sam Friedman a while ago um, from LSE about things like confidence. And if you can go in and, and there's that's like an objective marker that an interviewer at you know Oxford or Cambridge might be um, thinking about in their criteria and if you can go in a situation that you're quite familiar with because you know you've known people who've gone to Oxbridge before you know the kind of culture etc then you are going to be well placed uh, to come out with effective uh, blagging in that situation whereas I suppose if you're from a, a background where you've got no experience of this then almost like uh, even if you can give a bit of, of blag maybe your bullshit is not going to be tailored you know it's not going to be believable in the same way as if you're from a different background yeah completely and i think it really could have significant impacts on later lifetime outcomes um like i said i don't think we know the answer to that yet but there's a whole kind of stream of research that could be done about this but as france kind of said it's unusual to have data kind of such as this so um what we're hoping to do is convince some of the cohort studies that are held at uh, ucl to try and try and measure this in the future but we'll see <laughs> so let's talk about the data a little bit more because you've done more than just this, this most recent paper you're actually a bit of an expert let's 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 say on on this particular data set the pisa data set do you want to tell us a little bit what it actually tries to do what is this data set about yeah so PISA is a study that's run by the ABCD and it essentially tries to test children across the world it's now in about 80 countries uh, in reading maths and science uh, every three years so it's kind of two main purposes for being are to track performance in reading maths and science of teenagers uh, over time and to compare achievement across their education systems across the world to say well who's got the i don't want to say smartest kids but the highest achieving children in different areas yeah i think i mean it's been in the news recently with the latest set of results and i know you contributed to that 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 new cycle a little bit what's the quick sort of one-line summary for the uk average yeah uh, really steady as she goes we've always been slightly above the average in science we kind of had a bit of an uptick in maths but it's too early to jump the gun to say that's part of a trend reading pretty much average so in some ways we're, we're very much a bit of a boring country to be honest in terms of PISA um, we haven't seen huge swings over time okay and we're kind of mid-table you say and yeah pretty much mid-table above average a bit for science um, but otherwise yeah pretty much I mean there's um, more I mean okay so be it so yeah. be it you know educational policy you know steady as she goes 
Uh, but there's more that can be gathered from this data, and particularly in relation to family background. You know, we can make some interesting cross-national comparison, and you've done some work on that. Sort of what is the difference between, you know, rich kids, poor kids, and their kind of attainment gap. Can you tell us just a little bit more about that? Yeah, I can tell you in terms of kind of um, the Great Gatsby curve, if that's what you're kind of uh, yes, tell uh, us what, well, alluded first, to. What, what is, what is the, Great the Great Gatsby, Gatsby curve? curve? Yeah. So that's a kind of the um, cross-national relationship between income inequality plotted across a horizontal axis and um, social mobility up the vertical axis. So the idea is that countries that have more a more unequal distribution of income amongst the population have uh, lower social mobility. And the kind of um, uh, what's always been kind of claimed from that correlation, of course, it's not causation, is that, um, you know, if you've got more economic inequality, it harms your prospects of having socially mobile young people. So I guess the theory is that if you've got a more unequal income distribution, if we think of like rungs of the ladder, the rungs are further apart and therefore it's going to be more difficult to kind of from generation to generation for people to climb up those rungs. And also, I guess the other, the converse of that is that the further apart the rungs are, if you're at the top, it's more of a penalty for your kids if they fall down the income ladder. And so there's much more incentive for those kind of um, higher income families to do whatever they can to ensure that their kids don't fall down the ladder. And I think so one of the things would be education, right? Um, And you've looked at that in terms of cross countries and how education and parents education kids education how that works in that relationship yeah so what we did after we kind of uh plotted the great gatsby relationship which wasn't um war i should put the caveat on that we weren't the first ones to kind of claim about the great gatsby curve that had been talked about by american economists for a little while but we were the first ones to say well does education essentially mediate this relationship once we take into account what Matt was just saying, the fact that, you know, when the income distribution's more dispersed, you've got more incentive to invest in education and more capacity to invest in education, or bigger differences between high and low income families, does that lead to bigger educational disparities? And that's what we find. We find that there are bigger dis- um, educational disparities between rich and poor children, uh, between rich and poor, poor families. Um, when the income distribution's kind of uh, more dispersed. And once we control for that, looking at this Great Gatsby relationship, it does seem to explain uh, a fair bit of it, although it does still seem to be there even after you've taken kind of the education side into account. So there's other stuff that's going on that's kind of mediating this intergenerational relationship, but education is one of the one of the big... Yeah, it's one of the key factors within that particular the Great Gatsby kind of um, relationship. So- yeah, so I mean, I looked at uh, in a little bit more detail in one of your papers where you had this nice decomposition across the countries. And it, it is, and all of them, uh, a huge factor. And some, it appears to be almost 100%, yeah. which is in some way the way you'd want it as a policymaker, you know, that you can, you know, just through education, through improving the education system, you can bring the poor kids up the ladder, et cetera, et cetera. But in others, and others includes the UK here, I believe, you know, this relationship is, is, is much less, almost only half of the overall relationship is explained by, by education as being this mediating factor. And um, there were some other ones in there which I thought were interesting. Japan, for example, seemed to be quite, quite, um, education didn't matter as much as in other countries. Is there anything you can take away from, from these cross-national differences there? I mean, it seems very interesting, just just why are, why does it matter in some countries, not in others? Yeah, and I don't think we know the answer to that question, but I would kind of draw on other work that's going on in the UK at the moment, and the idea that education might be the great leveller. 
there's a lot of education experiments going on at the moment as you guys kind of know and that's trying to raise the attainment of disadvantaged children and what we're essentially finding is that things in education particularly for disadvantaged children are really difficult to move you know you're getting basically zero effects across a lot of these um, experiments so although education may have the potential to be a great leveler actually in terms of policy from what we can see it doesn't seem to be that these things are easily shiftable which is kind of and that kind of tallies a bit with what you've been saying about the PISA data if you know we can think of lots of different policies that have and changes you know that's one area where people always say you get a new education secretary fairly regularly you know every few years there seems to be a new person in and then everyone wants to make their mark everyone wants to change something and so we change GCSEs from A stars to G we go from now nine to one and these kind of changes are changing whether you have modular exams and A-S's and A-2's and you get all these kind of things. Uh, so lots of change goes on over time and then you look in PISA and, <laughs> and everything's flat. It kind of indicates, well, nothing is making a difference. Yeah, and I would point to kind of one of my colleagues' uh, papers, uh, Anna Katen Shemileski, who's a, a sociologist from the United States and she's used these international assessments going back 50 years uh, to try and look at the socioeconomic gradient as best you can going back that time. And England's one country, you go back 50 years, exactly the same socioeconomic gap back then as it is today. No change over time, which goes to show kind of how stark the differences is and how difficult things are actually to move. So one kind of policy point I'd make about this is um, I often see kind of particularly recently people talk about it taking 50 years or 75 years to kind of close the achievement gap between rich and poor i'd bite the hand off if we can cut it to zero in 50 years that would be an amazing amazing success and i don't think that point is appreciated enough so one of the things that you've worked on as well and 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 another interest that we're we're very interested in is around kind of the schooling system and grammar schools good old grammar schools um it's back you know it's something that it's one of those zombie policies that never seems to be fully killed off despite a lot of academic evidence not absolutely 100 percent, but the vast majority of the academic evidence suggests that grammar schools are not you know the the answer particularly for for social mobility um so you've done some work in this area looking at at the impacts on things like socio-emotional development and um yeah what have you found there yeah, I mean, I think there's kind of two key findings from that project. First is we looked at access, kind of get to your point about um, socioeconomic differences in grammar school entry rates. And we probably one of the first papers to actually kind of try and put numbers on the role of private tuition. So we all know it happens, gaming for the um, grammar school entrance test. And we just find there's absolutely huge differences by family income backgrounds in use of private tutors, but then also that really obviously helps your chances of getting into grammar schools. And we see that in England, we see that in Northern Ireland. So we see obviously big socioeconomic gaps of getting in. We see big gaps of equally bright, inverted commas, children. But then we kind of see these other things uh, playing a mediating role as well. And that's a really important point that's often lost in the kind of public discussion of grammar schools. Because a lot of people think, oh, you know, this is a chance for the bright young person from... Uh, a middle low income background it's a real chance to get into like the really good school and get a real elite kind of education but what we don't talk about is the fact that this system allows those with the money uh, to game the system and heavily stack the odds in their favor by paying this extra money out 
um, for private tuition. And that's so it's really important that your that your paper's kind of shown this that this is the kind of the ugly side of of the grammar system, and it's not all about um, you know poor kid done well, passed eleven plus, and and you know rescued. That the, the majority of um, people who go are from better off backgrounds, and and part of this is because they're using that parental resource to stack the odds massively in their favour. Yeah, and you see it massively with the kind of uh, with the private tuition industry, and you know some people make the argument that well you know parents want to do better for the children and of course they would i think it partly depends where that resource and where that tuition money is being spent if it's to boost things like maths and english skills or whatever you can argue well that's doing your child some long-term good but we know that a fair amount of that money is being kind of spent on the kind of um yeah the non-verbal reasoning component where you it's meant to be tutor proof but if you've got enough money and go to a tutor it's certainly not this tutor proof this is the bullshit again <laughs> we're back to the kind of uh, original paper it's also known as marketing i think in that context <laughs> but yeah no it's so it's true no no sorry i'm just you know i'm, I'm wondering a uh, quick policy thought came to my mind you know uh, vouchers for private tuition is that something you might support for example yeah and actually um when i wrote the paper i came up with a, a scheme very much like that where i said um what should happen is that uh, we should be taxing the private tuition services and hypothecate that tax, put it back into um, vouchers, essentially, or a discount for disadvantaged children to be able to get the same kind of access. Now, there's pros and cons of that kind of different approach. You know, you've got the shadow education system and that might type of tax might just kind of spare it on a little bit more. But I still think it's kind of a, a viable way that you could reduce demand for higher income families and help improved demand for lower income yeah, yeah. families and so that was one part of it you're looking at the kind of who goes into the grammar schools and what's the uh, socio-economic kind of gradients there but you're also looking then at kind of outcomes of the system yeah and one the thing i think that we did that other people haven't done when uh, in this literature is look at the socio-emotional kind of side of things so i guess um in crude terms, what does that mean? Does the grammar school test and grammar school system screw up kids <laughs> for the rest of their life? And you always hear kind of some, some stories about people talking about this and how it ruined them uh, for life. But we, we don't really see any evidence of that, both very soon after they've taken the grammar school entry test when they're still in primary school or when they've moved into secondary school. Essentially, we see children just as engaged in school and just as happy in their life and with the same mental health issues or not, depending on if they get to grammar or not, or they live in a comprehensive area of the UK or not. So we don't, we just really don't see any action there. If you like zero effects, they're the papers for you. <laughs> well, I've written a lot of papers with zero effects <laughs> and make big deals about them. We like them. We like zero <laughs> effects. Yeah. Yeah. Well, zero effects can have positive impact i mean that's yeah. one of the things you've written about um before and we've talked about before the need to have um impact and the potential for academics to contribute to policy making and you've written a paper about this about the limitations of quantitative social science for informing public policy which is super relevant to the whole idea of of policy matters and thinking about okay we talk to academics we talk about quantitative papers economists and and, and the like uh, for the most part and what that can then do to inform public policy. So you've um, talked about the limits and some of the issues. So uh, and one of those was around kind of null effects and whether they get published. So um, yeah, what are the limits and what can we? How can we do it better? Yeah, you're right. And um, in that paper, we go through a series of 
potential challenges I think and kind of are a bit scathing about kind of uh, or self-reflective on kind of what we all do so there is this issue of zero effects and everyone knows that zero effects don't tend to get published as much but then what that does is create incentives within the academic system that people don't publish null effects or they ignore null effects or they torture the data until they find positive uh, effects and um, a lack of kind of study protocols whatever to hold people to, to account a lack of replicability with people not sharing code so people can say how did you get your number i got it that way and see how sensitive the mm. results are so in that paper it's fairly critical saying well what could we do better not not as individuals but as an entire system uh, we also talk about the problems with the peer review process and one thing that you're kind of struck by i was struck by as a junior academic as well when i first went through this horrible horrible system but then you speak to journalists or whatever and they have this view and even policymakers have this view peer review is kind of the gold standard yeah. but yeah they don't really kind of they don't kind of really realize how how bad the system is and how random it is um it is it is so, very random it is very random and very very yeah it has its own issues it's unpaid lots of academics and myself i'm short of time i do it on the weekends i do it on my holidays you know i'm not in the mood to read somebody else's work at least you do it <laughs> yeah. at least you do it you I know mean, it's difficult i will kind of say give a plug to one of my recent papers which not that many people know about because i kind of didn't push it that heavy but um i was getting so fed up with the uh, ESRC process that I asked them to access their data to look at the consistency of peer review scores. Okay. The correlation between reviewer A scores, reviewer B, reviewer C, it's about 0.2, and so that's it. The, the Economic and Social Research Council, who yep. fund a lot of social science research, impact. Yeah. and so it's when positive. you apply to them, you, you, you're asking for a few, you know, £100,000, £200,000, or even more, and it goes out to reviewer A, B and C and so these are other academics who are asked to so review that work. Things, basically. So they all think different things but the system's worse than that because you can pick one of your reviewers and so we are able to look into that system and say well your nominated reviewer do they give you a better, does your mate give you a better score? Mm. Of course they do, they give you a much better score. Were so. you able to look at the um, longitudinal correlations within people? Are there some people who just consistently give high scores? That would be quite interesting. I, I think in theory you could do, but we haven't been able to look at that. I'm almost certain uh, that that is the case, though. Um, you know, there is a game to be played there, and I have reviewed for the ESRC, and I've read paper things, and I know if it's borderline, and I think, oh, it's a good thing, but, you know, and I know if I put my true thoughts down and say it's good, but it will get, not get funded. And then you have to either say, it's amazing, it's the best ever, even though you believe it's not. But otherwise, it doesn't stand a chance at all. And and it's kind of weird that the, some, some of the scores I've given are not the true reflection of what I thought, because I know the system. And so that's really interesting, because we exactly find that in this paper. If you get one bad score, you're basically toast. It basically stops your chances of getting funded. So, And of course, this review process um, isn't blind, so you know, right? I'm pretty sure you know whose, pay, whose proposal you're reviewing. Yeah, it's, it's blind one way, right? So it's you kind of you don't know who's reviewing your proposal, proposal yeah. apart from maybe one person that you can nominate. Yeah, right. But not, in terms of... World out there. It's not a big world out there. Yeah. We all know each other. Yeah, well, and that's yeah. the problem, right? Because although you can nominate someone and pick someone, that's that's part of the game. But then part of the random who gets 
this proposal you know if it goes to your mate your quid's in if it goes to someone that hates you yeah. i was gonna say we need to look into this data find out who put the kibosh on mine and francis's proposal uh, <laughs> a couple of years ago but it's that will we'll do that we'll do that offline um <laughs> but on a on a serious kind of policy point one of the issues about communicating uh, research with policymakers you were involved in um an example where there was a, a famous graph the feinstein graph um showing how crudely put uh, kind of bright poor kids were overtaken by uh, less bright uh, rich kids by the age of like five or something like that so you get looking at kids who are age two i think were kind of assessed and you had these poor kids uh, who were bright and then by the time they're five or ten they're overtaken and this caused huge amounts of policy uh, impact i think 500 million pounds worth of investment in pre um preschool early years uh, interventions and then you kind of took the data and had a look at it and and raised some of the issues and and showed that really it wasn't a very robust result so that's a, a, a real example of how these things kind of um research communication is really important and putting in those checks and balances that you talk about yeah and i think part of the problem with it was in some ways it wasn't necessarily a bad policy to do that um and i think part of the problem with the graph that kind of particular graph was it just got escalated to be this kind of mega thing that was underpinning everything and i think a lot of people kind of had suspicions and doubts about it not least but the sample sizes were tiny as well and stuff like that but i think there was a lot of kind of vested interest in there as well for people kind of wanting to believe that i always think if it showed the uh, if it was the other way around yeah, you know been killed, it would have right? been killed a lot earlier and would have come into but a lot of criticism simple graph and it was you're right it was a graph that people naturally believed in yeah. it was beautiful and i've noticed this myself and part of my managerial role some very complicated statistics KPI going through my desk, through my Excel spreadsheets, and so, you know, stories are very complicated to, to figure out within the institution, and sometimes I just put up very simple graphs. People will discuss them. I mean, I'm literally talking about a bar chart with two bars here, right, <laughs> where there's a, a gap. Yeah. And people will be discussing that for hours. And I'm like, guys, guys, you know, it's more complicated. <laughs> it's kind of a picture can be worth a thousand words exactly in that context. You can get people's attention. People can see an image and think they understand what's going on. It can be massively impactful. So we do a lot more complicated stuff in the academic world. But actually, it's those simple things that can really hammer home. And I think that kind of rings true with a lot of stuff we've talked about in the past as well. When we think about kind of politics and policy making at the moment and how simple messages just seem to cut through you know the kind of the economy stupid get brexit done take back control these kind of three words if you could and the equivalent is the academic graph that just shows something that you kind of rings true a little bit with what you maybe you already think and just yeah it's it's uh it's a wider discussion that uh it's important that you know we're raising these questions and, and academics are looking at this yeah strong and stable uh, so we are running out of time now, and uh, I guess our last question to you is: uh, We're going to make you Secretary of State of Education um, for a nanosecond, <laughs> Minister. What are you going to do? So I'm actually going to go left field. I'm, although I do a lot of schools research, I'm not going to say I'm going to go to schools. I'm going to go to higher education, Ooh. and one of the reasons I'm going to higher education is. I feel there's real problems there in terms of uh, assessment, in terms of grade inflation and incentives, um, incentives for teaching. So um, 
if I do now quite a lot of work with uh, Ofqual, the exam raters for GCSEs, and you should see how thorough they are in terms of marking quality, in terms of consistency over time, and all these checks and the examples. It's actually really quite impressive you go into the higher education world and you know you get people a week before the exams due kind of <laughs> panicking coming together, <laughs> together stuff and you know the consistency of the marking there's very little actually I think research into stuff like that and i think uh as secretary of state of education i would really want to start looking into that and equally around um incentives to encourage stronger teaching within universities um i feel that's an area where there needs to be kind of some serious work done possibly around kind of core curriculum areas within subjects so something like physics would have you know paper one paper two paper three one per year has to be sat by every physics student across the entire country i guess you're going to run into problems there with Oxford or not just i shouldn't pick on them but any any particular university who who's going to say wow we teach it like this, you know, this is the only way to teach physics or it's the only way to teach economics and this is how we do it. We're not doing a standard exam. This is how we've always done it. And Yeah, and I think you probably would have had that pushback at schools when the uh, national curriculum came in and I don't think it's a great excuse necessarily for not doing it. I think you would probably get pushback, which is why I'd probably suggest you have it one core paper each year because then on the side of that you do have you know your optional modules you can keep teaching what you want so you kind of in some ways in my view might well get the best of both worlds put like this for physics or economics there's some things that if you do an economics degree or a physics degree you should come out and know right no matter where you do it and i think having that kind of principle is something that really should kind of come into our universities john super duper thank you we're out of time I'll start working on my exams immediately after this <laughs> me think, too I think with a uh, a lot of the time with I guess we think you know what there's so much we could talk about so we will have to book you in another time and we'll we'll continue talking about all these different interesting topics that you're working on awesome cheers guys you've been listening to Policy Matters my name is Matt Dixon and I'm Franz Borchardt and we'll be back with more soon